Well, it's good to be with you. And uh, of course, it's our last evening together. And once you look at John chapter 6, <clears throat> verses uh, 1 through 15, uh, really is the story of uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's right after, probably six months after uh, Jesus being in the temple uh, and the conversation that he's just had. And uh, that was a festival, that was a feast of the Jews that was taking place. And now, six months later, it's almost time for the Passover. And we're coming into this uh, setting here, which is up back up in Galilee. And it's the feeding of the 5,000 scene. And we really want to focus on this evening, kind of want to just look at, really, the first 11 verses uh, of our story. And uh, it's a lengthy passage, so I'm going to read that for us. And... Uh, we're not going to look at the entire story, but we're going to look at the beginning of it. And uh, I'm reading out of the New International Version. This is how it reads. It Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. So that's the setting. It says, when Jesus looked up, and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, saying, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each to have a bite. Another of his disciples, uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus says, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Jesus, we love you this evening. I thank you for the opportunity of being your servant, being your son being in your kingdom. We thank you for what you're doing in the lives of those of us who are serving you. I'm I'm overjoyed with what you've begun in the lives of those even here in North Pekin and uh, wonder what the days ahead will bring. Um, May we be enthusiastic about serving you, focused on you. It's so easy to get distracted from you in the midst of all the details of the church life. Would you just keep us focused on you? Do whatever it takes. Just rattle us and change us. That really all that matters is you and your will and your desire. Continually bring us back to that one focus and we'll give you all the praise in your name. Amen. Um, Really, what we've been studying in John chapter 5 has been revolutionary to my life. Now, I say that in that, yeah, it's been revolutionary to my life. God's been dealing with me in my life. And yet, somehow, it just, at times, it doesn't sink in. Um, John chapter 5 was just phenomenal material. God is just, I mean, the message is so absolutely clear here, you just cannot miss it. The leader, uh, Jesus, is in uh, Jerusalem again, and uh, we've been talking about this this week, that you have two groups that are represented here. And it represents the two ways that you can be in relationship with God. The first way is uh, the first group, which we've been understanding and calling the Christian group. 
Okay, that's the group that belongs to God. Now, there's another group that's available, and that is the group that doesn't belong to God. It's the group that belongs to the enemy. It's the satanic group. Okay, so there are two groups that you can find yourself in. And really interesting, there's not three groups or four groups or five groups, but there's only two groups. You either belong to Jesus or you belong to the enemy. And that's what John 5 has been talking about. Well, these two groups are in dialogue with each other. And of course, uh, uh, Jews who belong to the satanic group really begin to press Jesus. And by the time we come down to about the middle of the chapter, around verse 16, or I guess it's still toward the beginning, but in the middle section of the chapter, verses 16, 17, and 18, the Jewish leadership of Israel, they're persecuting Jesus, and they're wanting to kill him. And uh, it's amazing to me, um, it's amazing to me his response. See, his response when he's pushed, when he's pressed to it, to give it a reason for why it is that he's doing what he's doing, see, he doesn't come back to the law, which, hey, there's nothing wrong with the law, okay? He doesn't come back to standards or rituals, or traditions. He doesn't come back to, well, we've always done it that way. See, that's not how he talks. That's not the direction he moves. Everything that he talks about comes back to the reality of the person who's influencing his life. The reason that he's doing everything that he's doing is a direct result of the person. Okay? That is so easy to miss. And I was in in conversation uh, last night... Well, it's actually a few different people. Uh, but it's so easy to miss him in light of the church. You would, I mean, this is, I'm just telling you the honest truth on this. Some of the most difficult groups that I work with are church people. Yes, I'm telling you, man. You're terrible. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Yeah. Okay. No, it's, it's church people. Because, see, you can, get wound up in, you can get wound up in the system and miss the person, if that's possible. And see, John chapter 5, it's just, I mean, it's absolutely just, I mean, ridiculously stated that what Christianity is about is not about the traditions, it's not about the rules, it's not about the rights and wrongs, it's about the person. We're in love with the person, we're serving the person, we're walking with the person, okay? It's it's the person. Now that's really strong in chapter 5, it's been strong all along, but by the time you get to John chapter 5, you basically have to close your eyes, shake your head with your your fingers and your ears, screaming so that you don't hear that message. That's the message, it's about the person. Now, I believe that. There's a woman in my life um, that, uh, who's a minister within Cross Style Ministries. Her name's Ellen. And, uh, She's quite amazing. I don't know how to actually, I don't know how to actually talk about her. She's one of those women that sometimes you love, and then other times you go, man, I wish she didn't press me so hard. She's kind of an accountability type of girl in our, in our, uh, in our, in our organization. She's phenomenal. But uh, I called her a couple weeks ago, and um, December was a really tough month for us. We got canceled twice. It's really aggravating. Uh, you know, you work with churches for two years in advance, and and you contact them a year before, six months before, three months before, two weeks before. And at the two-week mark, they go, oh, yeah, I forgot. We have revival, don't we? And, of course, you know, the Christian thing is the box of their ears. But, you know, we, we try not to do that. Well, that happened twice in December, which is really frustrating, not to mention makes it stretching. So I call Ellen. I'm venting to Ellen, talking to her about this. And she's pretty quiet. And she goes, Jeremiah, do you trust him? And, you know, what are you going to say to that? And, you know, you know what she's getting at. And you probably should just hang up, but, you know, <laughs> you just, you keep talking to her. And uh, she says, do you trust him? 
Do you put your trust in meetings or in Jesus? See, it's one thing to say, I really trust him, man. I'm following him. Yeah, he's, boy, he, it's, it's, it's him. He's providing. But see, when the rubber meets the road. Now, here's, here's the really interesting part. John chapter 5, the disciples are with Jesus. The whole concept of the rabbi with his disciples, uh, which is his learners, is they literally moved in with the rabbi. Wherever the rabbi went, the, school, the, the, the students, they literally, parents would turn their children or turn, uh, uh, of course, they would turn their, uh, these students, which was obviously their children, over to this rabbi. Normally, they would be in their younger years. And so these learners, these disciples, would follow their rabbi and live with him for as long as it took, uh, took uh, for as long as it would take. And uh, <laughs> I've been North Peking a little too long, but um, uh, they, they would follow him. They would follow him as, as long as it would take. And these and these learners, these disciples, would live with him and, and walk with him. And, and wherever he would go, uh, of course, they would learn. Now, the point that I'm getting at is when you're in John chapter five and this whole conversation is unspilling, you understand all the way back. Uh, even at the wedding uh, and what took place there and the phenomenal miracle in chapter 3 and why he was in the temple even says the disciples had a certain response to this whole thing when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in the upper room the disciples are there with him Jesus went to Jerusalem with his mother's brothers and disciples Okay, so this is uh, so his mother, brother, and disciples were up there, and they were exposed to this in the Judean countryside. The whole uh, this whole scene up in Galilee, right before he gets uh, back to Jerusalem, which is the end of chapter four, chapter five. Which again, he's there, and there's the healing that takes place. This whole conversation, the trial with the, the leadership of Israel. Listen to me, the disciples are there. They hear what they hear what he's talking about in terms of the person. Now, there's no way that they would just forget that. That would be almost as ridiculous as an evangelist who preaches about the person all the time and then practical everyday living forgets about the person. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? You come into chapter 6 after chapter 5, which has just been, I mean, you can't miss chapter 5. You come into chapter 6 and it's really interesting to look at the disciples. Here's what takes place. Of course, as we begin to read, he put this, put this in the context of uh, Jesus uh, going over to the far shore, uh, the, the far shore, the Sea of Galilee, where they call it the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, they're over in the Bethsaida area, uh, and uh, of course, uh, Jesus sits down on the side of this mountain he's with his disciples. And Jesus looks up and he sees this great crowd following him, and uh, he says, "It says it's a Philip." When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, not to everybody. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Okay. And then it says this. He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. And so out of this testing time, out of this whole scene, Jesus, here's the scene. He's on the side of the hill with his disciples. He looks out, sees this great crowd coming toward him. The disciples have been around the whole time. They've been in chapter 5. I mean, they've heard everything that he's... They're living with the one who's preaching this and living this before them. There's no way they're going to miss this. It's about the person. It's not about anything else. And he looks at Philip right in the face in the midst of this scene and says, Hey, look at this issue we have. And out of this issue comes the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is not a new new story. In fact, this is one of the few times where you have the same story told in all four Gospels. 
Any scholar would tell you that uh, not every, and obviously you can just read it, but not every story, not every miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. So that when you do find one that's foretold in all four Gospels, you need to obviously understand that that's very significant and that's happening. It's, it's a major event that took place. Because there was other feedings. There was the feeding of the 4,000. But see, John doesn't, doesn't talk about that one. It's only, in fact, Luke doesn't talk about that one. So but the feeding of the 5,000 was really, really significant. So what I did was, is I went back and I looked at the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and compared it with John. Because, hey, what's the message? What's the message of the feeding of the 5,000? What's this whole deal about? And uh, I was amazed. There's a lot of similarities between uh, the, these feedings of the 5,000, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with a lot of similarities uh, with John, but there's also differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, okay? There's also differences. Some of the similarities are, and I won't go back and read it, but um, the setting, similarities. The setting is the same. In every gospel, it's always on the far shore with Sea of Tiberias over by Bethsaida, or Bethsaida, however you pronounce that. Uh, it's, it's in the province of Galilee. It's the same setting. Another similarity is at the time aspect. It's about six months after one of the other feasts, and it's always right before the Passover setting. Okay, right before the Passover. Right before the Passover. Okay, so the time is always always the same. Um, also, in terms of the number, it's always five thousand people. Okay, it's always 5,000 people. That's the same in every gospel. And it's also always five pieces of bread and two loaves. So this is the exact same story. Now, this is really significant because when you show different scenes, all the scenes, all the writings, and sometimes uh, with these miracles throughout the, the four gospels, they're always, always a little bit different, each one of them. But this one, it's remarkable about how, uh, how similar the story is. I mean, this was a big-time story for the disciples. This is a huge event. There's all kinds of similarities. And, of course, there's, none, there's other. The food's the same. Even really it comes down to it. The overall themes and messages are similar. But what I found interesting is that there were, there were differences. In John's gospel, there were three... Now, hear this. This is really neat. There are three distinct differences in John's gospel from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. Okay? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you have Jesus, who has everybody sit down, and he stands up, he grabs these pieces of bread, these loaves, okay? And some of them he breaks them, others he doesn't, but he always, in the English translation is, gives thanks, okay? He always gives thanks. And it's, it's, it's quoted, give thanks, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well... I'm just trying to be thorough, looked up that word for give thanks. And what I found was, is the word in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is different than the word that John uses for give thanks. It's an entirely different word. Okay? The word that's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the word, it's a compound word uh, of pronounced ou and logos. Okay? Uh, eulogos. Okay, that's, the, that's the Greek word. And it literally means good word. It's a good word. It's a, it's a giving of a, a good word of thanks. Okay? And that's how it's normally translated, to give thanks. Okay? That, that's the word that's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But when you come into John, I found it really interesting that John doesn't use that word. He uses the word Eucharisto. Okay? Eucharisto. Which is where we get our term... Eucharist. That's where we get our term, Eucharist. 
which is really interesting because the Eucharist in the scriptures, especially uh, if you can, you can read about this in the early church and as it was established, the Eucharist is always established as the uh, sacrament that we call the Last Supper. Okay? So what he does is, and what's interesting is, is when you begin to read most scholars, and by the way, when you read through the Gospel of John, one thing that you find is, is that the Last Supper is noticeably absent from the Gospel of John. You ever realized that before? It's not recorded. There's no Last Supper scene where he's breaking the bread and, and, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. That's gone in John. That, that, that scene doesn't happen. At the, it's, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the end of the Gospel. It's not in John's Gospel. So most scholars say, not most, some scholars say, hey, the Eucharist, the Last Supper, is noticeably absent in the Gospel of John. However, it's not, I would say, it's noticeably absent as it's presented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but the concept of Eucharist is absolutely displayed and talked about in the Gospel of John, and he sticks it right in this scene. Okay? We're going to explain that in a minute, so you don't have to be confused for long. There's another difference, okay? There's another, another difference between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and this, this seems like, really, this seems like kind of a side point, but it's not. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus gives thanks, and then he takes the bread, he gives it to the disciples, and they distribute it, okay? But in the Gospel of John, it's a little different, okay? The Gospel of John is a little different. Listen to what, he, listen to what happens. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. So the whole middleman of the disciples doing the distributing is completely left out. And what you have is, is Jesus, after he gives thanks, okay, the sacrament, the the Eucharist, after he gives thanks, he himself goes and distributes the bread to the 5,000, okay? Noticeably, second difference. The third difference I thought was interesting is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I never knew this before, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Jesus says, hey, where are we going to buy bread? And I think maybe even one of them, uh, they're like, hey, look at all these people, and they ask Jesus, where are we going to feed these people? But nonetheless, this issue comes up, hey, where are we going to get the food, the bread, uh, whatever we're going to use to feed these people? There's this huge issue, hey, how are we going to take care of this issue? And all of a sudden, we have this food that turns up. Okay? The disciples just happen to have, or they, they acquire somehow, five loaves and two fish. Okay? That's, it's just produced in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, they, it just isn't produced. It doesn't talk about what they have. All of a sudden, popped up out of nowhere, Andrew brings in this kid, verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy. Okay? And you just don't have five loaves and two fish that are all of a sudden produced, you have this little boy that Andrew, poor Andrew's mugged, and um, he has five small barley loaves and two small fish. So, okay, now this is really significant. You have a lot of similarities between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in this story. And every gospel talks about this story. It's very, very significant. But in John, there are three distinct differences. Okay? Three distinct differences. The first difference is uh, that uh, the word give thanks is different in John than it is in the other three Gospels. It's the word Eucharisto. The second is Jesus doesn't give the bread to the disciples and they distribute it. Jesus himself distributes it. And the third difference is, is that the loaves and the fish, uh, the fishes uh, come from a little boy who is present. It's his lunch. It's what he has. Okay? It's his resource. 
It's what he presents, okay? I want to talk to you about the first one, which is the idea of the Eucharisto. A um, couple things, and we talked about this this week, so this will be good for us. You understand that John's gospel is written, and I looked this up today. They believe Matthew and Mark were written around uh, the year A.D. 50, okay? A.D. 50. Luke, they believe, Luke and Acts is actually one book that we've divided but they say Luke Acts was probably written somewhere between 60 and 62. Somewhere between 60 and 62. The Gospel of John was written somewhere between 95 and 100 AD. So you have, I'm talking 40, even some close to 50 years difference. Now think about this. What you have is, is you have an established church. that is. You have, and most scholars say, by the time you get to this book, you have second and third generation Christians that are reading this book. Now, what, what that means is, is there are certain things that are established. There are certain traditions that are taking place. By this time, John, by the time he writes this book, John is the only disciple who's left. All the other disciples have been martyred. Paul is dead. Most of the, most of the eyewitnesses, John is the only one left, and you have second and third generations. The Gospels are there to serve as the account of the eyewitnesses, and you have an established church that's taken place. Now, hear this. And it always happens like this. With established church and traditions, you have problems. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, and I won't even turn there. But when you come into Acts chapter 19, what you find is, is Paul comes into this city of Ephesus. And uh, he is, uh, he's ministering there, and he runs into these disciples, or at least followers, of John the Baptist. And he's preaching. And, of course, these guys who follow John the Baptist begin to talk with Paul. And Paul, and they begin to talk about how they received the baptism of John. And Jesus says, well, or, or Paul says, well, hey, did you, did you hear about Jesus? And, of course, John was the, was, the, was the preparing of the way of Christ. And so he baptized these guys, and these guys go nuts. And this phenomenal revival breaks out in Ephesus. And it's, it's incredible. And what you have is, is by the end of this revival, you have these, these uh, couple years, uh, it, was, it was several thousands of dollars, uh, they, they use the term drachma, but all the people who get saved in Ephesus come and they bring these silver shrines that they used to worship their gods with, and they take them and they throw them at the feet of, of Paul, and it's this phenomenal revival that's hit, uh, hits Ephesus. There's a silversmith there who is making these shrines. He's now out of business. His name's Demetrius. He stirs up this riot, and Paul gets rushed out of the city. You remember that, okay? Paul leaves, goes down the road for a year or so, ends up riding back and says, hey, I want to talk to you, Ephesians, Uh, those of you from Ephesus. He meets with the elders, and he cautions them. Now, hear me on this, please. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in among you. They're going to destroy the flock. They're going to weave into you wrong doctrine. They're going to weave into you false teaching. And he really cautions them on this. In fact, the passage is so strong, and it's like Acts chapter 20, at the end of chapter 20 and chapter 21. He's like, never, never forget that I never stopped warning you night and day about this with tears, is what he says. He goes, and he goes on, and he ends up, he's going to uh, Rome. He ends up getting to Rome. He's still worried about this. And if he writes back to them the letter that we have, which is called the book of... Ephesians, which again is to this early church that's established. Now, that's the beginning. You follow that church 40 years later, 35 years later, and guess where you find that church talked about? Anybody know? The book of Revelation. 
Whoever said it, that's right. The book of Revelation, the first, tre- the first church addressed in the, ch- in the seven churches of Asia Minor is the church at Ephesus. Now listen to this. It's really interesting. Jesus gives a lot of confirmation, and this is what he says. He says, I know your deeds, okay? That's your works, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, number one, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, number two, and have uh, found them false. You've persevered, number three, and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Okay, he lists three or four really significant things. If you go back to Paul's talk with them in Acts chapter 20, and you read through the, uh, the book of Ephesians, this is exactly, he's warning them, and they've held on to these things. And yet, this is what Christ says to them in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. And what you have with this church 30, 35 years later are second and third generation Ephesians in the church and they've held all the traditions but they've forsaken. It's kind of a long illustration. You get it? They've kept all the things that Paul has said all the things, hey man, like, don't let anybody come in among you. Test them and approve them. Hey, mark them by, by the, the doctrine. Hey, hey, endure heart. All these kinds of things. He says, listen, but you've left me out of all of that. Then he says this, go back to what you did at first. Which is all about the person before all the traditions. And what you have, now hear this, with John's audience... You have a group of people that have been established for some 40 and 50 years. They know all the traditions. And by this time, the Last Supper scene is extremely familiar. Paul, in all of his letters, Corinthians and Romans especially, he's constantly urging them. Corinthians had a huge problem with the Last Supper deal. If you remember, they're always arguing over meat and people are getting drunk there and there's all this kind of eating problems. So the, the, the Last Supper scene, the Eucharist has become a serious issue in these churches. And get this, this is so neat. What, what John does is he takes the Eucharist, okay? He takes this Last Supper scene, which we probably at some point desperately need this in our churches. And John takes this Last Supper scene, the Eucharist, and he strips it. He strips it of all the familiarities. He strips it out of the scene of the Last Supper and he places it in concept right here. Does that make sense? In other words, he takes what the Last Supper is really supposed to be about because they come and they... Do you ever kind of wonder? You guys obviously do communion here. Do you ever wonder if perhaps there are people who come as they're popping the thing in their mouth and going, this little wafer and it tastes terrible if I could just get it down and... They always wish they had more grape juice and that kind of thing. And you can hear everybody going, and it's a distraction. And there's always some board member who's really worried about getting the pews stained. And you got all these kinds of things going on in the service. Do you ever think it's possible? Probably not here. But that maybe we're on the verge of missing or distracted from the real deal of what the Lord's Supper is to be about. I propose to you that John, and it's so purposeful, everything in this chapter, everything in this chapter points to it. The first thing is, of course, verse 4, the Jewish Passover feast was near. This was the setting for the Last Supper. By the time you come down in the middle of chapter 6, Jesus is saying, hey, whoever you know, eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Okay. Now, obviously, he's not really talking about, hey, take a bite out of the arm and, you know, He's not talking about that kind, not talking about, you know, 
a physical flesh and blood type of thing, but it's the spiritual food, which is exactly what the Lord's Supper is about. The bread or the wafer represents his body, and the grape juice represents his blood. This is the context of what he's talking about. So John strips it. you got to get this. He strips it of all the familiarities, and he sticks this in the context of the feeding of the 5,000, and he says, listen, this is the real deal of what it's about. Now, first thing, that was the Eucharist. The second thing is... Uh, The role, now hear this, the second thing is the role that Jesus plays in the Eucharist, the role that Jesus plays in the Last Supper. Um, Some scholars tell us that by the time you get to the end of the first and even second century, a lot of the traditions of the church were so tied to the apostles that Christ at points became lessened. For instance, Paul talks about this in the Corinthian letters. Paul says that the the churches are already gathering together and say, well, I follow Peter. And others are saying, I follow Paul. Remember what he says? Paul says, whoa, it's about him. It's about Christ. And so what John does, and there's no way, there's no way that Jesus could distribute the loaves to 5,000 people. There's no way. Listen Listen to what he writes here in verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Well, that's, there's no way. There's no possible way that it took all night. There's, it's just probably not, not probable that Jesus told the disciples, hey, you sit still, and Jesus himself distributed those. So John, in saying this, especially when Matthew, Mark, and Luke said that, that, that uh, uh, Jesus distributed to the disciples and the disciples did it. So what John is doing, are you following me? John is making a point here that, hey, he has totally sliced out of the picture anything that's going to distract us from the person. He slices anything out of the picture that's, A, that's going to pull any type of weight, that's going to pull any type of focus whatsoever on the person. Uh, Let me help you with this. I struggle with teens. And I'm not just saying this. You are fortunate to have the pastor you have. You're really fortunate. You're very fortunate. But I have teens at some churches. I've never had them here, being honest saying, I wish you were here. And they don't like their pastor. But you understand, they're falling into the problem that this group here falling into. It's not him, nor is it me. If you come to church expecting to hear Jesus, I don't care who's speaking, you're going to hear Jesus. And we get so enamored with the styles of music. We get so distracted with who's preaching with what we're wearing. We get so wrapped up in those kinds of things that the person takes off in the background. And after a service where Jesus Christ himself was there and was worshipped and was proclaimed, we walk out of the service going, well, he wore jeans. <laughs> and that becomes the issue instead of the person. That's true. Okay? This is the issue. It's an absolute, and it's phenomenal, especially when you take these four, and I don't know if I'm explaining this as well as I should be to you, but when you take these four stories and you lay them, wham, 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 right beside each other, John's just so absolutely absurdly sticks out among all four of them that he's taking certain aspects of the story and he's deliberately changing them for his audience and says, listen, I don't want to talk to you about the Last Supper. I want to talk to you about the concept of the Last Supper, the real deal, and it's about the person and what he wants to do in your life. It's not about the tradition. Uh, I want to be careful on this, but see, in terms of the baptism and stuff, 
and the age and who can take it and who cannot be a part of it or who can be baptized and who can't be baptized and, and uh, who can be a part of communion and who can't be a part of communion. See, Wesley, have you ever read Wesley? Do you know who Wesley let take the communion? <laughs> Anyone, man. Why? Because it wasn't about like a level or a, or, or, a, or a system you, or a jump through the hoops or you had to qualify. See, it was about the person. And somehow when you were in the, you were in the Eucharist, when you were in the Last Supper, you weren't into an institution. You weren't a part of a group. You were into the person. I've been to some churches where in order to take communion, you have to know the secret handshake. <laughs> see, I, I know that's probably too far, but see, he's not, that's not the issue here. See, he cuts out, he cuts out, well, are you with Peter's group, are you with Paul's group, are you with this disciple, are you with this, are you Nazarene, are you Baptist, are you this, are you that? See, he slices all of that completely out of the story, and it's about the person. It's about the person. Amen. Powerful. Jesus himself, it's absurd, distributed, it's about the person. Third aspect, which is actually the point of the story, he's testing, this is so convicting, I should be ashamed. Jesus, six months later, after chapter 5, after sitting there and listening to Jesus, they're seeing him face to face. His veins are popping out. The passion in his heart, and he's all worked up. He's probably walking back and forth, talking to the leadership of Israel, saying, hey, the scriptures testify about one thing. Moses, he's only talked about one thing. The Father's been testifying. Guess who it's been about? It's been about me. My works, it's John the Baptist. Everything, everything is about, it's about the person. That's what it's about. Six months later, Six months later, Jesus is on this mountainside, just crossed over the Sea of Tiberias. His disciples are with him. This great crowd of people are coming. They're out in the middle of nowhere. This is what Jesus does. Jesus looks over to Philip. It's really interesting. I struggled with why did he pick out Philip? It's the only gospel. Oh, there's another difference. Just realize this. Philip is the, uh, this is the only, this is the only story where Philip is singled out. Jesus didn't ask the disciples. He looks directly to Philip and then says he asked this only to test him. That word test literally means to prove. It's to test what's really going on inside of Philip. Struggled with why Philip was picked out. And then I went back and looked where Philip was from in John chapter 1. There on the other side of uh, Tiberias in Galilee, the town of Bethsaida, Guess where Philip was, to, where it was from? This is his hometown. Now, they're a ways from Bethsaida, but this is his hometown. Uh, he knows the economy. He knows the terrain. He knows the territory. He knows the kind of people there. He went to school just right down the road. Okay? He, he's been here. He's done that. These are his old stomping grounds. He rode his dirt bike right over there on that sand dune or on, you know, on the other side of the hill. Hey, he, he knows the area. In fact, when he comes back, I could probably put, if I was like Philip, hey, uh, I would be, hey, I know where this is at, I know where that's at, I know where this is at. And Jesus looks at Philip, knowing exactly what Philip's going to say. He says, hey, where are we going to buy food? Listen to Philip. Philip answered him, eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough to have uh, bread for each to have a bite. He says, listen, man, uh, I know the town. Hey, I just grew up right over there, went to school over here, played over there, dirt bike over there. Uh... They're not going to be able to eat here. It's this insurmountable problem. It's something that they cannot get by. I mean, they've got a real issue. Eight months, eight. There's no way. There's no way this is going to take place. 
And immediately, Andrew shows up. And Andrew says, hey, here is a boy. <laughs> Think of this. Here's this. Here's a boy with five, five barley loaves and two fish. Can you see Philip going, oh, good. Wait, way to go there, Andrew. A smart one, buddy. <laughs> yeah. That'll take you and your fat brother, but that's about it. You know, not going to feed anybody else. Now, maybe Philip didn't say that, but you have Andrew going, hey, save the day, took the care of the problem. Hey, right here we have a little boy. I, I got his lunch with me. I mean, of course, and this is right on the backdrop of Philip saying, eight months wages. <laughs> it's terrible. It's going to be terrible. I mean, in this town, maybe in Jerusalem, maybe we could swing something. But hey, it's out here. It's in the country and the minimum wage is down. Eight months wait. This is a huge issue here. Philip, insurmountable problem. Andrew says, hey, here's this kid and his lunch. And Jesus tells everybody to sit down. He says, have the people sit down. And they all sit down. And Jesus faces an insurmountable problem. And he uses the resource of a little boy and his sack lunch to save the day. To bring about what needs to be brought about. Now, no one in this room would be foolish enough saying, well, you know what the answer is? A little boy's sack lunch. That's what I need. That's what I need. I need a little boy's sack lunch. No. <laughs> it's not the sack lunch. It's not the sack lunch. It's Jesus. Now, I need to tell you that because we'll, you'll go to a church next Sunday and you'll sit in their sanctuary and they'll have this big praise band and the church is booming. And do you know what you'll say? Guess what we need? We need a big praise band. That's the little boy in his sack lunch, folks. Well, I know what we need. We need drums. No, no, you don't need drums. That's the little boy in his sack lunch. You need Jesus. Well, it's the color of the carpet. That's why no one comes. I'm telling they don't even match the chairs. I mean, I've noticed that every time I've been here. It's absolutely ridiculous. And that's why no one comes. See, if we could just get new chairs, that's what, if teens, if we could get new chairs and, chair, and, 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 and carpet that matched the chairs, and, and, then people would come. Do you know how retarded that is? It's not the chairs. That's the little boy with his sack lunch. What I need is start booking churches that actually come through for revival. And I, seriously, I need to start charging. I need to start charging. Because I've got to have this much. Here comes Ellen. Jeremiah, that's the little boy with his sack lunch. What if, imagine this, what if my destiny was not tied to a little boy in his sack lunch? Because the little boy with his sack lunch never appears throughout the rest of the gospel. What if my destiny is not determined by you or my schedule or my slate or my revivals? But what if the resource in him is so phenomenal that he'll take these pathetic, he'll take these insignificant, insufficient details of my life and he expands them and he shows me how great he truly is. Philip, I bet he felt like a retard. He said, "I'm I'm so limited in the midst of a God who's unlimited. And you know for the last six months after that, after that scene, Jesus has been just grilling him on that. And Philip never got a hold of it. 
Where's your foolishness? Where do you stress? Where are you so focused on the little boy in his sack lunch? I don't want to live there anymore, Jesus. But I, I just... I probably should just come clean and say it's so hard to trust you. I think it's a result of me not being close enough to you. Me not being tight enough to you. Uh, we thank you for this week, Jesus. Don't let what's been going on here end. Don't let them come in here Sunday morning and see a little bit different service structure. There's no table out in the foyer. The preacher is not as quite as good looking and a little shorter and different personality and Don't let us miss you and what you want to do in light of the changes. It's not about me. It's not about Roger. It's about you. Would you, would you do what you want to do in North Peak and Church of the Nazarene? Would you have your way? Could we get so, so wrapped up into you that nothing else matters? You're the, you're the one. You're the person. You're the resource. It's not the deliverer. It's not the means. You're it. You're the one. I don't want to put my hope in anything but you. Untrain me. Unlearn me. Shake me down. Bring me back to your my one focus. Thank you for all you're doing in our life this evening. Thank you for what you've been doing and what you're going to continue to do. Bring us back to a focus on you in the midst of our jobs, in the midst of our entertainment, in the midst of our struggles, our marriages, our kids. When we're facing the eight months wages problem, let us just trust in you and give you all the praise. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior Christ Jesus, amen.